Uh, Revelation 21. Find Revelation 21. Homecoming, God's way. Homecoming, God's way. And while you find chapter 21, if you would also find 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll actually read that first. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? I want to begin in 2 Peter chapter 3. And read with me beginning in verse 10. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Then over in chapter 21 of Revelation, our main text for the day, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Father, we're so thankful for the message of salvation that we have in the Bible. And just to stop and think and meditate upon and reflect upon the great blessings that you have in store for those who know Christ. Lord, we read of salvation past, present, and future in the Word of God. Salvation past. That day when we were born again, when we repented of our sins and placed our faith in Jesus. And the Bible says right then and there our names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Salvation present. Now that we're saved, we are being saved. We're to be sanctified as we're conformed more each day to the image of Christ. And then one day we will be saved. We'll enjoy the consummation of our salvation when we're with you in heaven. 
And Lord, as we reflect on that aspect of our salvation this morning, I pray that if there is even one here today who is not assured that they're going to be there, that they would get right with you today, that your Holy Spirit would do His sovereign work on their hearts to draw them to faith in Christ. And Lord, those who have made that decision may, seeing what we have to look forward to, may we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our work in the Lord is not in vain. Give us strength to press on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Taj Mahal was built between... 1632 and 1653 by Shaw Jahan for his wife of 14 years. It is constructed of white marble and it is said that it almost appears to glisten like a jewel on the banks of that wide river. It's framed by four minarets, each one placed at the corner of the red sandstone platform on which the entire building sits. The exterior of the white marble structure is inlaid with black onyx. The interior, including the walls, ceiling, and caskets, are inlaid with semi-precious stones in floral designs. Now folks, just imagine with me a moment the painstaking craftsmanship that was involved in completing a project that took over 20,000 workers more than 20 years. How can one measure the love that conceived of such a project? And in the end, the lavish and wealthy Shaw was defeated by death. First the death of his beautiful bride and then his own death. You see, the Taj Mahal is a tomb. Now, if one Indian ruler could build something as exquisite as the Taj Mahal, as a place to bury his wife of 14 years, what must Jesus be preparing as a place to live with his bride for all of eternity? John saw our heavenly city, he writes here, prepared as a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. Now I want to ask you this morning, has your life been a series of struggles? Have you sometimes been more empty than satisfied or more alone than accompanied? Or more sad than happy? Have you felt at times more defeated than successful? Have you ever felt that perhaps you don't quite belong here? Now this morning if you are a follower of Jesus Christ I want to talk to you about your eternal home. I want to talk to you today about heaven. And what we're going to see this morning in this passage is the glorious future that God has prepared for those who are His children. And my prayer is that as we read this chapter 
and in weeks to come also as we read chapter 22 that you and I will have a new desire, a new longing for our heavenly home. And my prayer likewise would be that if you do not have the assurance of going there that you would get a fresh glimpse today of all of the glories of heaven and the love that God has prepared for those who do belong to Him and that love and this talk about heaven would motivate you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the book of Jude says we're to save some out of fear and some out of love. Now we've certainly seen the fear already in the book of Revelation as we've explored some of those passages about hell and about the lake of fire. And he's going to mention that again today. So if that fear, fear of that place has not motivated you to come to faith in Christ, hopefully the love of God as you think about his preparations for his children, maybe that will motivate you to come to faith in Christ. Now we've got four thoughts we want to cover this morning. We're going to talk about heaven being a real place. A place where we will enjoy eternally God's presence. A place where there will be no pain. And we have all of these promises, all, all these assurances I should say, as the promise of God. Let's look at those one at a time. First of all, God is preparing a place called heaven for his children. Read with me again verses 1 and 2. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. Now folks, for a moment here today, I want, I want to take you back in your minds all the way back to Revelation chapter 1 where we started. In Revelation chapter 1, John was told to write the things which have been, the things that are, and the things that shall be. Now for the majority of the book of Revelation, we have talked about the first of those two. The things that have been and the things that are. But in this last section of the book of Revelation, John is going to talk about the things which shall be. He's going to talk about heaven. The glories of heaven. Now folks, again, think of it in terms of the backdrop that we've seen. He's already warned us of the judgments that will face those who do not know Christ. Now he's going to lay out for us the blessings of those who do. Now more is said about heaven in chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation than any other single place in the Bible. Now throughout much of church history, God's people, throughout much of history period, Old Testament history as well, God's people have loved to focus rightly so upon heaven. The saints in the word of God saw themselves as strangers and exiles on this earth. It said that Abraham was looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's how we're to be looking. We're to be longing for our heavenly home. 
Billy Sunday said on one occasion, if we could get a real appreciation of what heaven is, we would all be so homesick for heaven that the devil wouldn't have a single friend upon the face of the earth. The Bible makes it clear that we are to focus on heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul writes in Philippians 3 verse 20. He's writing to the Philippians. They had a dual citizenship. They were citizens of Philippi there in Macedonia. But they were also citizens of Rome. Rome had conferred upon them Roman citizenship. And so they understood the concept of dual citizenship. But he wanted them to understand dual citizenship in in another light. That we are citizens of this earth but our true citizenship is in heaven above. And so as citizens of this earth we are even now supposed to be living by those standards of heaven. We're to be living godly and holy lives. We're to be citizens of heaven. The Bible also said that our focus is to be heavenward. Writing to the Colossians, Paul said, If you've been saved, if you've been raised up with Christ, then you need to seek those things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This world is not to be our focus. In fact, James in James 4 warns us that we had better not be in love with this world. James says if we are in love with this world, then we have made ourselves the enemies of God. 1 John 2, John says much the same thing. Love not the world nor the things of the world. And so we're to have that proper affection. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that our rewards are in heaven. And so in Matthew 6, Jesus said that we are even now to be laying up our treasures in heaven 1 John 3 2 tells us that when we get there and see Jesus we'll be like him 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we will have resurrected bodies I'm often asked pastor what's the resurrected body going to look like people are curious about these sort of things And all I can say is as far as we know the Bible gives us a clue of it in the Gospels with the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus. Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room after he was raised from the dead and you'll remember when they saw him they still recognized him. He said to Thomas, Thomas, place your hand in the, in the, in the uh, scar in my side and in the nail prints in my hands and know that it is I. And the Bible says he took bread and ate among them proving to them that he wasn't merely a ghost. That he had a physical body and yet at the same time you remember how he got there in the upper room too, don't you? Did he come through a door? No, he passed through the wall. Solid body that can eat and be touched. Passed through the wall. How can that be? We don't know. I mean, it's nothing like what we see here on earth, but I think it gives us a clue of what our resurrected heavenly body is going to be like. And the Bible tells us that all of those who have this hope in us, we need to be purifying ourselves. 
Now folks, as we get into chapter 21 here, verse 5 is perhaps the key verse. We're told that the former things have passed away and God is making all things new. Now we see here and in chapter 21, the new heaven, the new earth, the new people, the new Jerusalem, the new temple, the new light, and the new paradise. John sees in verses 1 and 2 a vision of the new Jerusalem and he sees the new heavens and the new earth. Now that begs a question, what happened to the current heavens and earth? Well, we read about that in 2 Peter, right? What happens to this current heavens and earth? It's burned up. This earth as we know it is going to be melted down. I tell you what, everybody's worried today about global warming. Global warming and global warming is going to happen and neither a Democrat or a Republican is going to be able to stop it. The current heavens and earth are going to be melted down and God is making all things new. The first time he destroyed this earth by flood, the next time by fire. Now we're told that the new heavens and the new earth has no more sea. Some scholars take this as a statement about the unity that there'll be in heaven. Because now the nations of the world and the continents are divided by oceans. And they are ruled by separate kings and separate governments. And throughout the history of mankind, these separate kings and separate nations and separate governments have been at odds with one another, at war with one another. But not so in this day. There will only be one king, King Jesus, and he'll be the King of kings and Lord of lords. You remember what the people said to Samuel in the book of 1 Samuel? They wanted a king like all the other nations. And God said, Samuel, don't be grieved about it. It's not you they've rejected, but it's me. Give them a king. And so Samuel anointed Saul. And there, there began the disastrous, most of the time, the disastrous history of different rulers who were leading them. But in that day, we'll be under God's rule. And again, Jesus will be on the throne. King of kings, Lord of lords, will be unified under his rule. No division. And will be there gathered around the throne, worshiping and serving him. Now here we see the holy city descending from heaven in verse 2. And what John sees is our eternal abode that is finally made ready. It is adorned. Now you remember in chapter 19, the church was compared to a bride adorned for her groom. Here is the heavenly city likewise like a, a, a bride all adorned and ready for the saints. And so we are made ready like a bride for Jesus and the new Jerusalem like a bride is made ready for us. And so what a beautiful glorious sight this is going to be. The bride's completely ready. Spotless and adorned. The heavenly home is completely ready. Spotless and adorned. I think of how things were made ready in the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2 when God created the heavens and the earth first time, the first time. God spoke and it was so. And after each day of creation God said it is good. It's good. And finally it's 
very good. But all those uh, days of preparation before the first man and the woman, uh, Adam and Eve, before they were ever put in the garden, God, first of all, got everything ready. He didn't put them into somewhere that was not ready. Now, folks, we travel around the world today and we travel around even our own state in this country and we see some of the beautiful things that we see on this earth. And it makes you wonder if this earth is so beautiful. I mean, that place that Jesus has been preparing for more than 2,000 years, you know, in John chapter 14, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. If this world now is so beautiful in many areas, can you imagine what the new heavens and the earth is going to look like? He's been making ready for more than 2,000 years now. What a glorious sight that's going to be. And what's being emphasized here is that heaven is a place. It's not an illusion. It's not a figment of your imagination. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to prepare an illusion for you. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare what? A place for you. Heaven is a real place and what is being communicated in the Bible is that it is not going to be like an earthly home that a family grows out of and they have to relocate or move somewhere else. There's going to be plenty of room for everybody who has their name written in the Lamb's book of life. And Jesus is getting it ready. Paul said he was convinced that the present sufferings of this age cannot even begin to compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm reminded of the little boy out walking one night with his grandpa. It was a beautiful starlit night and he said, Grandpa, if heaven is so beautiful from the outside as we look up at it, can you imagine how beautiful it must be from the inside? Heaven is a place. Secondly, I want you to see heaven will be a place of God's eternal presence with His children. Verse 3, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself shall be with them as their God. John hears the words of the angels here. He he says that God Himself will mingle among His people. I think of Genesis 1 and 2, how the Bible says before sin entered into the picture, how God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's going to be like that even better. I think of how Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, he he was walking. You remember when he he was walking with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and and they said afterwards, didn't our hearts... Uh, get warmed and stirred as he opened up the scriptures to us and beginning with Moses he spoke about himself and what wonderful fellowship they had there on the road to Emmaus. It's going to be like that again. He says God himself will minister to his people. 
I want you to think with me back a moment to the Old Testament. I want you to remember when, when Moses and Aaron, when they led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they were out there in the wilderness, God gave them very specific instructions about how to set up the tabernacle. That everywhere they would go, they would set up the tabernacle and that tabernacle was to be a symbol among them of God's presence with them. They were not on some journey by themselves. God had not sent them out of Egypt into the wilderness to be on their own. God was going there before them and God was with them and the tabernacle symbolized that. You remember that day they moved in to the tabernacle and later the temple and the Shekinah glory of God filled that place, the presence of God. Then in John 1, speaking of the incarnation of Christ, the, the Bible says that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then in John chapter 16 when the disciples were so worried about Jesus' words that he was going away from them he said it is to your advantage that I go away because if I go away I'll pray to the Father that he'll send another of like nature and essence of myself the Holy Spirit speaking of the third member of the Trinity and he will be with you always even to the ends of the age. And then right here, right here what does John see or say in verse 3? What's he told? The tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell with them. The point that I'm making folks is all through the word of God we see that it has been God's pleasure and God's desire to dwell among his people. Why in the world would God want to dwell with me? Or why would God want to dwell with you? And yet all through the Bible we see that God's desire has been to dwell with His people and His people with them. In fellowship. And He makes that possible through faith in Christ. Folks, can you imagine being in this place that is perfect? No sin, no devil, no evil. Everything is holy and pure and fellowship with God in that place, in that day. I mean, if fellowship with God can be so wonderful now, think about how it's going to be then when sin is taken completely out of the way and Satan is com taken completely out of the way. Because what is it now that oftentimes gets in the way of our communion with God? It's sin. Now if we have a relationship with God, sin doesn't break the relationship, but it sure can affect the fellowship, right? Think about your own children as an example of this. If your children do wrong or, and sin and disappoint you, are they still your children? Yes. Has the relationship been dissolved because of their wrongdoing? No, they're still your child. But the fellowship can certainly be hurt, right? You're at odds with one another. Who can figure out some of the things that kids do? You ever get mad at your kids? Amen. 
Boy, I'll never forget, years ago in our former home, Connie and I just, we had just had new hardwood floors put down and Melinda was a little girl and, and one of her friends in the neighborhood, they, they got in this rocking chair. Now keep in mind a rocking chair, wood, so we're talking about wood to wood here and they're pushing one, of, they're thinking that rocking chair I guess is some kind of NASCAR or something and they're zooming, pushing one another around on that slick hardwood floor through the house. Wood on wood, what do you think it did to those pretty new hardwood floors? I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you ever get mad at your kids? The fellowship ever hindered with your kids? You know, they came out a year or two ago. Uh, they, they said they've discovered now that frontal lobe in the human brain uh, that... that, that uh, guides judgment and discernment is not really mature and developed until somebody is 25 years of age and so sometimes I say to my kids you are exhibit A of that <laughs> it's not formed yet but they're still your kids but again, my point is, in that day where there's no sin, no Satan, no evil, no demons, no unrighteousness, when we're dwelling in that place that is perfect and pure and righteous and holy, can you imagine what our fellowship is going to be in the presence of God in that day? Makes you want to be there, doesn't it? Thirdly, I want you to see the saints can look forward to a place and time of no more pain. Verse 4, John says, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Be no more tears. This doesn't mean that there will be tears and God will wipe them away. It's a statement they'll be banished altogether. And death will be gone. You know, death, the Bible says death is the last enemy to, uh, to be destroyed. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians. The last enemy. Now I guess if somebody's crippled up and diseased and maybe old and been suffering and laying on their deathbed for months and months and, and just pain and agony every day, I mean it can, there can be a time and point if they're a child of God, death is a welcome relief. But yet the Bible still calls it the last enemy to be destroyed. The last enemy. It'll be removed altogether. 1 Corinthians 15 says it's defeated now. The sting of it is defeated now through the resurrection of Jesus Christ which gives us the promise of our resurrection but someday it's going to be defeated and removed altogether. And then in a sweeping way in verse 4 um, God tells John here the former things have passed away. No more crying, no more mourning, no pain. All bad memories and broken promises are erased. Evidently, we won't remember friends or family who have not made it to heaven. I would assume that that knowledge has been erased because no, no regrets, no mourning, no pain, no tears. Won't be tears for anybody who didn't make it. Just think of it, no grief, no more broken hearts, no more broken homes, 
No hospitals, no cancer, no Alzheimer's, no blindness, no deafness, no surgeries, no prisons, no ambulances, no sickness, no suffering, no dying, no funeral processions ever, ever again. Famous pastor of First Baptist Dallas, Texas, Dr. George W. Truett, Member was dying on one occasion. The family was called in. They said, Pastor, you need to come. We don't know. He probably doesn't have but a few hours left. George Truett ministered to him, prayed with him. He was a wonderful, believing man. The pastor looked at him and he said, Sir, if you make it to tomorrow, if you wake up tomorrow, well, then, then he was referring to, to the man waking up in heaven. He said, you know what? When you wake up, when you close your eyes on this side and wake up on the other side, you're going to be better. And the man looked at him and said, Pastor, I beg to differ with you. I'm not just going to be better. I'm going to be well. I'm going to be whole. I'm going to be healed. Some of you have loved ones who knew Jesus and went on before you. Their home, they've been given that ultimate healing. We don't have to grieve for them. They're better off than they've ever been before. They see by sight what we can only see by faith. Man, the sights that they must be seeing. Wonderful. How can all of this be? We're told again at the end of verse 4. The first things that passed away. Remember what Paul said in in the book of Romans? Look at, at Romans 8 with me just a moment. Romans 8. How he talks in Romans 8 beginning in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now here's a question for you. Who subjected it to futility? You know what a lot of people say? Satan. It's not Satan. It's God. God's sovereign over all things. God subjected it. God allowed sin and Satan to enter in. God's not the author of sin though. Don't ever say that. But God allowed this. He didn't create robots. He created humans and set boundaries. And humans have disobeyed those boundaries and their sin. And the whole created order, it's been subjected to this penalty But redemption means he's making all things new. Romans 8.22, Paul says all creation is groaning. Every Katrina, every Sandy is an example of the creation groaning. 
But as Revelation 21.4 points out, the first things have passed away. The devil and the false prophet, all the unbelieving have been cast into the lake of fire. God makes the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness and perfection dwells. No more devil to tempt man. No more evil. No more devil. No more demons. No more ungodly. No more sin. No more consequences to sin. Everything is perfect. And then what's he say here? No more pain. We won't need a leave in heaven. Amen? You ever get up now in the morning and your joints are stiff and sore? You know that experience. The, the older people are sitting there. They know what I'm talking about. No more pain. Did you see that Atlanta picture this week? Run over to first base. Make you sick to watch. Oh. Put his foot out on the first base bag. The runner came by, stepped on his leg, and it crushed it into. Oh. Pain. I think of a couple of years ago. We were out at Frank List Park, church picnic, and Jeff Ashball's out there playing football out on the field with with high school boys and college boys. And somebody hit him and, and, and broke his leg. Broke his leg bad. I want you to know, Jeff had to end up getting a prosthetic leg because of that leg break. Now, never mind, he already had one. <laughs> it was that that broke. He came hobbling in on that broke leg and some of the boys were looking at him. What's wrong, Mr. Ashball? I, I broke my leg and they were looking at him. You're not crying? No. He sat down. You're not going to the doctor? No. I tell you what, there's some young boys running around this church. That Boy, they think Jeff Ashball is the biggest stud around. I tell you what, he's the man. No more pain. No more pain. Lastly, the saints have these assurances because of the promise of God. Pick up reading with me in verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Somebody might say, all of this that, that John's been writing about just seems too good to be true. What do we tell our kids? If it sounds too good to be true, it's too good to be true, right? You ever tell your kids that? Because they can be gullible and just buy. If it sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. But the Bible is saying here, not in this case, because we're not talking about merely the words of men. We're talking about the word of the living God. And you can take it to the bank. It's as good as done. 
Look at verse 6. All you got to do is start with thirst. Let's talk about thirst a minute. Men thirst now. Sin and Satan promises. They promise satisfaction bring misery and emptiness. Men are thirsty and so they search and search and search. And nothing they find outside of Christ seems to satisfy them in the deepest longings of their heart. Then Jesus came into the world. He said, I'm the living water. Drink of me. Drink of the water that I give you and you will never thirst again. And so a man drinks and he's saved. He's saved. And then the Bible tells us as Christians we're to continue to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And Christ just keeps supplying satisfaction for us. And then in heaven one day, whether it's talking about some kind of physical or spiritual thirst, whatever our needs are for all of eternity, God will satisfy those needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So not only is heaven a place of no more pain and suffering, but it's also a place of no more dissatisfaction or emptiness of any kind. And it'll cost you nothing according to verse 6. You know why? Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And once again verse 7 promises us this is our inheritance. Everything in chapter 21 that he's told us about is in the will. All of these promises are in the will. Now folks, there is one more warning that he gives in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Because one more time he's saying, not everybody makes it to heaven. Don't believe that lie that you hear sometimes in the world. Some people say, you know what, everybody's just going to end up making it one day. Everybody goes to heaven. The Bible doesn't say that. Jesus said, broad is the road, wide is the road to destruction. And many there are that travel that road. And right here God is saying to us one more time, all of these folks that miss it, they're on the outside. They're experiencing the lake of fire. He catalogs a number of of sins here. The point is, just like what John says in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So the one who says, I know Him and yet walks in the darkness is a liar and the truth is not in him. The Bible Bible doesn't condemn somebody for stumbling into sin. Christians aren't perfect. Christians aren't perfect. Just forgiven. But the one who says I know him and yet walks consistently as a pattern, as a habit. He leaps into sin and loves it. Does not know God. You see the Bible is saying redemption ought to leave footprint on a man's heart 
If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If somebody says with their lips, Hey, I'm a Christian. I know him. I'm saved. And they've never been made new. Bible says they're a liar. And so this group that he's talking about here that just keeps doing all these things show by their life that they've never been redeemed. And guess what? Because they've never been redeemed, when the children of God are enjoying all these glories of heaven, they miss it. It's like God is saying one more time, don't miss it. Don't miss it. It's too great to miss. Paul says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has it even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. It's going to be even better than we can imagine. Don't miss it. This morning, do you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? If you know that, you might be going through hardships now, tribulation, difficulties. As a Christian, you might be discouraged at times. Press on. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This life, this current heavens and earth, we go through difficulties, but, but Christians look up, look at what's coming one day, and so press on and be found faithful. Illustration I used a couple of years ago with you, I think it bears repeating. Missionary Henry Morrison. Henry Morrison and his wife had been in Africa for 40 years, 40 years. And they were finishing their missionary service and they were coming back home to the States. And as they were aboard that ship, they wondered, will anybody be back home who remembers us? Will there be anybody to greet us? Now, it just so happened that they were aboard the same ship of President Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was a big game hunter. He had been to Africa on a three-week safari. And so as they came into the harbor there at New York City, there, was, uh, there, there were thousands and thousands of people there. And big banners, welcome home, President. And there were bands playing and all the crowds were cheering and everybody was there to welcome the President back home. Henry Morrison got discouraged. He said to his wife, you know, we've lived among the African people for 40 years. We were there when they gave birth to their babies. We were there when they laid their aged in the grave to bury them and say goodbye. We were there in the good times and bad times of their lives. We struggled alongside of them and walked, uh, worked alongside of them and served alongside of them for 40 years. And the president goes to Africa and shoots a few tigers and antelope and he comes home to a ticker tape parade. What about us? 
And his wife put her hands on his shoulders and looked him in the eye and said, Honey, you need to remember something. We're not home yet. We're not home yet. Don't miss it. If you don't know Christ, you're one heartbeat, one breath away. That's all. One heartbeat, one breath away from missing everything that God describes here in chapter 21. Don't gamble with your soul. Would you stand please? If you don't know Christ, I'll be down front. Either one of the Kevins, they'll be down front. We would love the opportunity to pray with you and share with you what the Bible says about being saved. Don't miss it. If you know you're saved but you are discouraged, think again at your inheritance that's waiting on the other side. Look up. God's got great things in store for you. Press on. Press on until He either calls you home or He comes back for His bride, whichever happens first. Press on.